You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Here are some highlights from this week's program. The opportunity for transforming not just individual lives, not just individual families, but an entire community is very exciting. As much as there is that kind of devastation in many ways, there's also this incredible beauty and love. Uh, What we're trying to do is important for a wide swath of people. It's not just artists or the family and friends of artists. It's, it's It's a real community interest that we have. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 150, Good Works That Last, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 27, 2014. What does it take to keep a good thing going? Nonprofit organizations, founded with specific needs in mind, need to move and shift in order to evolve successfully. Join our conversations with Deborah Walters and Jane Gallagher of Safe Passage and Space Gallery Executive Director Nat May and learn what their organizations have been doing in order to offer lasting benefits to the community. Thank you for joining us. Listeners of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour know that I am a huge supporter and fan of Safe Passage, which was created by my um, Bowdoin College classmate, Hanley Denning. Um, Today we have with us two individuals who have been long-term supporters of Safe Passage to an even greater degree than I have been myself. So I'm pleased to have with me Dr. Deb Walters and Jane Gallagher. Dr. Deb Walters is on the board of directors at Safe Passage. This summer, Deb will be kayaking from Maine to Guatemala to tell the story of the children and families living in the Guatemala City garbage dump. Along the way, she hopes to raise money to build a school in Guatemala. Jane Gallagher is a program manager with Deedle Partners, a philanthropic advisory firm. Jane has spent many years volunteering and working for Safe Passage. Her family sponsors two Guatemalan students, and she has been part of five support team trips to volunteer in Guatemala. She's the co-chair of the Casco Bay Friends of Safe Passage. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here, Dr. Lisa, and to have a conversation with you. Well, for people who aren't listening, and I'm assuming everybody will want to go back and listen to all the past shows where we've talked about Safe Passage. And they'll also want to buy a copy of our Daily Tread so they can support Safe Passage. But for those who don't yet know about this wonderful organization, tell us what it is that Safe Passage does. Well, um, Safe Passage was founded in 1999 by Hanley Denning, a young woman from Yarmouth, Maine, who went to Greeley High School and Bowdoin College with Lisa. Um, And the mission is to help children and families who live and work at the Guatemala City Garbage Dump. Um, The primary goal is to get kids into um, 
public schools. Um, public schools in Guatemala are half day, so Safe Passage enrolls the students in school, helps with uniforms, school supplies, books, and entrance fees. And then for the other half of the day, um, they come to the Safe Passage Center where they get help with homework, um, a hot meal. Um, there are social workers that work with every family, um, and there is an abundance of other um, extracurricular type activities that the students can get involved with from art and music, drama, break dancing, um, all kinds of other activities, sports, um, many of which I've helped with when I was in Guad Guatemala volunteering. And you've been on the board of directors, Deb, is that right? Yes, I have um, for the past eight years. Um, I was most recently uh, board chair um, and now I'm really looking forward to continuing not being board chair. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not you're continuing not being board chair, but you're taking on this other enormous journey, which we were very impressed by when we heard about it. So tell us about that. Okay, so when I tell people that I'm kayaking from Maine to Guatemala, most people's responses is, you must be completely nuts. <laughs> And so I like to try and explain um, why I actually think this is a really good idea. And um, it, it really, when I was working as a um, cognitive scientist and university vice president, I really didn't have enough time to give back. So I decided to retire early, to live very simply, not to spend very much money on myself. And then that gives me the time and resources um, to, to reach out to help others uh, to follow my passions. And one of my passions is, is Safe Passage. And that started about nine years ago when I went to Guatemala with a group of Rotarians and I visited the Guatemala City garbage dump. And I smelt the methane gas and the rotten garbage and I felt the choking dust blowing around my face, and I saw the vultures circling overhead. And I had an opportunity to talk with the parents who support their families by scavenging in the garbage dump for food, for clothing, and for items that they can recycle. And in, in doing that, I was talking with the mothers, and they were saying, well, it would just be so great if our children would be able to just go to school, to learn to read, and to have a different future. And that simple dream just broke my heart. And so I felt like I had to do something. Um, and so I started volunteering uh, with Safe Passage. And I've just been so impressed with the many successes there. So for example, um, I met a grandmother who makes her living scavenging in the dump. And at the age of 73, she decided that she wanted to learn to read so that she could help her grandchildren with their homework. So she went to Safe Passage for just a couple of hours a week, learned to read. She recently wrote the story of her life using a computer. And so she is one of those people that inspires me that you're never too old <laughs> to do something extraordinary to help others. So I decided to um, combine two of my passions, the passions for the children at Safe Passage, with my slightly unusual passion for long-distance kayaking, and then kayak from my home in Maine to their home in Guatemala. Not all of it will be actually spent on the water. 
Well, yes, because in a kayak, uh, while I have slept in the kayak before, it's not very comfortable. So I'll be coming ashore every night. Um, and then at many places, every week at least, I'll be stopping and talking to groups, sharing the story of the Safe Passage children and helping to raise funds to add additional grades to the school. Um, and then in the larger metropolitan areas, um, we actually have larger events planned and opportunities for people to come out on the water and join me paddling in, sh in short stretches, um, et cetera. So I'm really looking forward to it, but it is going to take, I'm, I'm leaving in mid-July, but it's going to take about a year for me to get down to Guatemala. And it's not gonna be all through safe waters. This is true, yes. So I've, I've got over 30 years of experience with, with kayaking and paddling, um, both you know leading expeditions and then going on a number of solo expeditions myself in the Canadian Arctic, along parts of the Northwest Passage, down the coasts of um, several countries. Um, but this expedition is actually going to have more exposed water than other expeditions that I've done. So yes, it's definitely going, going to be a challenge. Deb, you're doing this as, um, as an individual. You're doing this as a solo trip. That doesn't concern you in any way? <laughs> a lot of people ask me that. I mean, because you know, all the kayak guides say never kayak alone. Um, but while I enjoy kayaking with a group, I also enjoy kayaking alone. And one of the reasons is because if you kayak alone, you're taking along less of your own cultural baggage. So especially like when I'm up in the, in the Arctic, um, by traveling alone, it's easier for me to meet the local Inuit, to have interesting interactions. Um, so for example, you know, one woman invited me to join in her son had killed his first seal. And so they had this ceremonial skinning of the seal. And then as, as the outsider and the honored guest, they offered me, you know, what they considered to be the best part of the seal, which is the partially digested contents of the intestine. <laughs> And, and you know you can't say no, <laughs> you have to. but 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 I that that's one of the reasons I enjoy traveling alone. Um, another reason is when you're traveling alone, you can get more connected with the land, with the sea, um, and it's almost a kind of um, sort of mental spiritual um, exercise. And another reason is that you get closer to the wildlife or as my husband says, gives the bears an opportunity to get closer to you. But, <laughs> but, it's, but it's also um, kayaking with other individuals can be a liability as well. Um, and so for me, I feel like I can do this more safely um, doing it by myself. But of course, I have a whole support team of people that are helping to organize this, helping us to get corporate sponsors. Um, people have volunteered all along the coast to host me. Um, so I won't always be camping. Occasionally, I'll take the opportunity to sleep in a bed. 
um, and people are also signing up their youth groups to participate in our art workshop. And this is, this is exciting because the students at Safe Passage will be participating as well. And it's helping the students to think about some experience in their life where perseverance has been a real value and the, then creating a piece of art around that. And then at the end of the expedition, we'll have a traveling art exhibit with art from the students in Guatemala and the students all along the coast. In addition to worrying about your familiarity with bears, what else does your husband think about all this? <laughs> well, actually, my husband shares a similar passion for going out and doing physical things. So on my during my six-week paddle um, across parts of the Northwest Passage, he was actually riding his bicycle across the U.S. And so we tell people we like to take vacations together, well, meaning at the same time, <laughs> but not necessarily together. And, and fortunately, he doesn't worry about me. Um, he says he worries about me most at the end of the trip when I say, okay, I'm finished now, I'm going to drive home or fly home. So I, I'm lucky, and my children are the same way. Jane, I know that when you and I worked together on our daily tread, we continued on with this theme that was so important to Hanley, which is that everybody should do what they can. And Deb is able to do this kayaking trip as a result of where she is in her life. And you have been able to host um, children, sponsor children for 11 years and also be part of five support teams as a result of where you are in your life. You have, your youngest child is now in high school, is that right? Yes, he is a junior. Well, he's taking a gap year, but he's technically a junior in high school. And then your other children are out of high school. So, but you've been able to do what um, you could for safe passage while you were the mother of young children and then slightly older children and now children are even getting older but you did what you could yes um, it's interesting when I think back on it um, that then the lessons that I take from this experience come from that sort of looking back and reflecting um, there were days when the kids were little where I would um, see them off to the school bus in the morning, run upstairs to my computer, start emailing with Hanley and, and others, phone, making phone calls, working on the computer, and all of a sudden I'd hear the bus come back at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was still in my pajamas, still in that chair, hadn't really budged all day. Um, and if I had thought about it at the time, and thought about what was a rational thing to be doing with my time, it probably would have involved some type of paid employment um, or some kind of other balance in my life. Um, but when you hear a story like Hanley's and have the opportunity to connect with the people in the program through sponsorship or trips to Guatemala, um, it sort of shifts that thinking a little bit and takes it out of the rational mode um, into the heart mode. And um, and so for me, it's been an incredible opportunity to grow and to learn about myself and to um, get to know incredibly wonderful people like Deb um, and so many others like you, Lisa, who have um, come into my life because of Safe Passage. Um, I think when you start off and you talk about someone doing something crazy like what Deb's doing, it might seem crazy to most people, but not to those of us who actually know Deb. <laughs> it's kind of, okay, okay, this is what she's doing now. So it's been an incredible journey. 
You've had a chance to actually see um, a result. You had a child that you sponsor graduate. Yes. And make it all the way up through the system. An incredible story of an incredible young man, Anderson. Um, and all of the kids we sponsor are, are incredible um, for different reasons, but um, have overcome incredible obstacles in their lives to stay in school and learn the skills that they need to move to a better, more dignified life than what they were brought into when, when they were born. Um, but Anderson, um, we started sponsoring him when he was about eight years old. He's 19 now. Um, he has done everything that was asked of him. Um, he has been an incredibly diligent student. He's very bright. He's driven. He wants to be a doctor. And I'm positive he'll get there. Um, but he graduated from high school, um, received a scholarship to go to a private high school in Guatemala City, um, graduated, and is now working at a company where he had to be bilingual. So after graduating from high school, he had to really push himself to get the English, and he went back to the Safe Passage Center. Long-term volunteers there worked with him. Um, and when I was there in November, said just everyone who knew, found out I was Anderson's um, padrina um, said, had incredible stories to tell about this hard work he did to learn the English well enough so that he could get this job. And he's now working in customer service at this company, um, answering phone calls in English. Um, and he will probably do that for a couple of years, but he wants to go to medical school, and I believe he'll do it. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The most important thing you need to begin a personal evolution is heart. To start your journey, you have to take the first step with your eyes and your heart wide open, open to new experiences and possibilities. Without this openness, your efforts, your path toward growth and positive change will be fraught with obstacles that seem insurmountable. So if you find yourself looking forward to good things to come, open your heart and take a brave step toward the future. If you're interested in evolving your relationship with your money, get in touch with us. I'm here to help at tom at shepherdfinancialmain.com. We'll help you evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. I don't think that we can emphasize enough the distance there is between living in a home that doesn't necessarily have running water or electricity or really any of the comforts. You know, having when I visited Guatemala, I mean, it's an it is a, it is a city, it is a community, but it is. 
very temporary feeling, you know, the corrugated roofs and, you know, the things that people brought together to make their homes. There's a big difference between growing up there and trying to go to school while you're living there and getting to a place where you're answering phones in a different language and going on to medical school eventually. It's huge. And um, one thing that that Safe Passage did that just I just about levitated off the ground when I heard about this was to establish Proximo Paso, which is the program that's sort of like guidance counselors for the students who are coming up in the program and on the verge of graduating from high school and working with them, providing um, clothing for interviews, you know, some simple practical things like that, but also talking with them and working with them on all the cultural differences that they're going to find when they have to take buses to different neighborhoods and communities and integrate into a workforce that's very different from the community where they grew up. Um, And it is heartbreaking to think about um, Anderson and some other students going back into the barrio and having to live with homes that don't even have a floor, that when it rains, um, the water comes, you know, in gullies of water just comes flying under the corrugated metal sides of their homes and and onto the floors and their mattresses are on the floor and it's it's pretty devastating to think about that um one image i'll never forget is after we took anderson out we were visiting guatemala and we had our sponsorship visit with him and we had taken him out for ice cream and into a bookshop and picked up a few books for him and and i watched him sort of clutching his bag walking back into the barrio and um, just worrying, did we do the right thing? Should he be carrying those books? Does that make him a target walking back to his home? Um, you know, he's so conflicted, but you know, like my heart went with him as he was going back to his home. That's an interesting point you raise because it's not simply that there is poverty and the fact that this is a dump that is you know, acres and acres long, um, but there's also violence. I mean, it's not a safe, place to live in. I mean, when I was in Guatemala City, I think I took my iPhone out to take a picture and somebody immediately said, no, don't do that. You know, and there, while I was there, and this is not, I don't think that this is anything that um, shouldn't be said, um, there were safe passage workers who had been robbed and robbed not that far away from where these children get their education and where they live. I mean, this is not, this is not an easy place to be. No, I think that there's a couple of things to say about that. First and foremost is that Safe Passage is extremely careful about where volunteers, long-term and, you know, service team, support teams can go. Um, So there is a very serious effort to keep everybody in the program safe. That being said, the kids go home at the end of the day and and they live in that reality. Um, The other response I have to that is that as much as there is that kind of um, devastation in many ways, there's also this incredible beauty and love and generosity and kindness of spirit that exists in that community. Um, and I, re- I remember standing outside of the Safe Passage Center um, in, I don't know, June or July after if 2007, the year Hanley had died. And I stood outside and I kind of froze before I could go into the building and just tears just I was like a water faucet just crying standing outside the building and about three or four moms who were dropping their kids just surrounded me handed me tissues and like hugged me and soothed you know brushed my hair and were just what's wrong you know what can we do for you so here I am 
coming down there to try and help. And I stood there and had all these lovely women who have nothing coming to offer me help. It was incredible. And, and I think one of the things about the community there is um, Proximo Paso also looks at the students after they graduate. And some people might have the idea that, you know, once you have an education, once you have a wonderful job like your sponsored child, then you can move out of the community and move somewhere else. All of our students, all of our graduates, have stayed in the community. And so what's happening is an opportunity to transform the community. Because as you say, there's so much, there's so, so much that's positive there. And one of the things that I keep being struck by, in Guatemala there is no safety net that's organized by the government. So the parents that are working in the garbage dump are entrepreneurs. I mean, and they have figured out business models that work. So instead of collecting plastic and selling it at the gate to the person who's willing to give them a small price for it, they take it home, they wash it, they sort it, they form a cooperative. They will not sell when the price is low. They wait until the price is high and then sell it. So all of the, all of the skills, all of the creativity, all of the business sense that people have it's, it's being unleashed now, and so there are more small businesses being started. Um, the community really has the op opportunity to, to transform. Now, the, there's always the danger in all areas of Guatemala from problems with, with gangs, with drugs, etc. But one of the things that I've always felt in visiting the community is how everyone whether or not they're involved with Safe Passage or not, sees the Safe Passage emblem on my shirt, and they look out for you. And they will, you know, pull you back, or they will, <laughs> you know, tell you not to take your camera out of your purse. Um, but, but just the, the opportunity for transforming not just individual lives, not just individual families, but an entire community is very exciting. I'd also like to tag onto that. Um at Safe Passage, there's now a social entrepreneurship program, and that was born of the adult literacy program, which was started by some long-term volunteers several years ago. Um, and at first, it was all moms coming through the program, and it's still primarily mothers, but there are some dads in the program now. Um, but a as some of the first wave of women were coming through and getting their sixth grade um, degrees, um, they started writing stories about their dreams, and one of the dreams was to have a small business. So they, long-term volunteers, helped them get started with some microcredit, and um, one of the first things that was launched was this jewelry business called Creamos, which means we create, we believe. Um, and so Deb and I are both wearing <laughs> um, examples of the jewelry, um, but there are moms, quite a few moms now who don't have to go back into the garbage dump anymore um, to scavenge through um, the trash, um, but who make a better living by selling, making and selling this jewelry. Um, and I can say my first, my second trip to Guatemala um, happened to meet a bunch of the parents when we were there for the monthly meeting where the families come to meet the social workers and get hear announcements and things like that. And my impression of the mothers was that they were completely shut down not a lot of energy, very low self-esteem, 
wouldn't look us in the eye, um, just a very, very withdrawn group of women. And if you fast forward five years to my trip in 2011, I was invited to go to the Monday morning meeting for the Creamos Cooperative, um, and this 24 women blew into the room, like energy, fresh air, laughing, talking, smiling, looking me in the eye, full of good energy. And I got goosebumps standing there just because Hanley wasn't there. And I kept thinking, oh, she could only see this. But it really reinforced to me my gut feeling from the beginning, which was, you know, it's wonderful that we're educating these kids and it is transforming lives. But when you transform the mothers, you're going to transform this whole community. And I, I, ha I can't even describe how different it was in such a short period of time. But to give women these tools to learn to read and write, some of them who didn't recognize their own child's name in writing before they went through the adult literacy program, to see how that has transformed so many women, grandmothers, mothers, and others. It's an, it's an incredible thing. I think what I come back to as you're talking is that, you know, there is no denying that this is uh, dangerous and uh, smelly and challenging. But I think in the face of all of this, there is this great beauty. So, you know, it, it is both. It's, it's a both and situation. And in fact, in some ways, you're able to see this great beauty, whether it's emotional beauty or physical beauty. Um, you know, the artwork that's created by the students mm -hmm. because it's so starkly contrasted. Mm -hmm. And m when my son was there for a year after high school and before college, you know, when he went down and he was 17 years old, he turned 18 as he was starting the year. I think this is something that really, um, really struck him, that the, the contrast was the was what made it possible to grow really in a very strong and significant way so i appreciate that both of you are spending time in your lives making this possible for the children and the families of safe passage to do this for me i could calculate in hours and dollars probably what i've given and i, I suspect you could too deb um, but what you get back can't be calculated it's not something you can translate into hours or dollars it's in the spiritual whatever that increment of growth is it's 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 a growth in faith it's a growth in spirit um, and it's incalculable and, and for me I just get so inspired um, by you know talking with the women and what they've been through what they're going through and this last time I went down and I could have told exactly the same story that Jane told about seeing the difference in, in, in the women. It's just marvelous to see now these confident women. Um, but I, I asked one of them um, who actually um, started working in the dump when she was eight. Um, and now her, she has a child who uh, wants to be an accountant and another child um, who wants to be a vet. And, and they're going to do it. They're going to achieve that. And I asked her what her dreams were when, when she was a child working. In, and she said, you know, I really didn't have any dreams. I, I wasn't really living. I was just surviving. And so now she's so pleased that her children have these dreams. So I was telling her about this kayaking expedition from Maine to Guatemala. So I asked her what could be 
a tough question to ask people. I said, okay, Marina, what's the message that you want me to give to people from you as I kayak from Maine to Guatemala? And she just looked thoughtful for a minute, and then she said, well, there's been a quote that's been very meaningful in my life, and I can't remember exactly who said it, but it goes like this. If you believe you can do it, you can do it. And I was just so inspired. <laughs> um, so here I'm getting my inspiration from Myrna, and, and she's saying, and spread that inspiration all along the coast so that if I believe I can kayak from Maine to Guatemala, I can do it. But tell other people all along the coast, if they believe they can do something, they can do it. I'm, I get blown away. <laughs> You're right. We get so much more out of it, I think, than, than what we give. Such an important lesson there, though, that, that lesson about belief. I've had so many people say to me over the years, it's so good that you go there. I could never do that. And I look at them and say, no, that's my line. I, I'm a born worrier. I like my backyard. <laughs> but the truth is, is if you believe you can do it, you can do it. How do people find out about the um, kayaking journey that you'll be taking, Deb? Well, we have um, social media, and you can get find links to the social media on our website, which um, you can find from the Safe Passage website or um, www.kayakforsafepassagekids.org. And if people would like to sponsor a child, Jane, same place? Uh, safepassage.org. Um, there's, a, there's a link for sponsorship. And if anybody wants to talk about the immense benefits of sponsoring a child, I'd be happy to chat <laughs> with them. We've been speaking with Dr. Deb Walters and Jane Gallagher, both of whom um, have spent time working with Safe Passage for many years and the children of Safe Passage and continue to do great work. So thank you so much for continuing the legacy of Hanley Dunning and for coming on the radio show. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have a chance to talk with you, Dr. Lisa. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk and just looked up? I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. 
The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour um, has been a wonderful opportunity for us to showcase nonprofits in Maine and specifically in the Portland area. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to talk with people who have had some um, long-term impact on their community because their nonprofit has been in place for a while. One such individual is Nat May. He is the executive director of Space Gallery in Portland, which is a nonprofit contemporary arts venue. Nat was one of the founders of the Bakery Photo Collective and has served on the boards of the Portland Arts and Cultural Alliance, Portland's Downtown District, and Creative Portland. He is a founding board member of the Hewn Oaks Artist Colony. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. Nat, you founded Space Gallery in 2002, so you're coming up on your 12-year anniversary as a nonprofit. That's a big deal. It is, and actually, I'm not a founder. I, I started helping out about six months after space opened um, and the the friends who founded the gallery knew about my work with the photo collective and asked if I could help them out a little bit so um, but yes I've been there I've been the executive director there for 10 years and uh, it's lasted much longer maybe than we thought it might well tell me about the space gallery for people who haven't had a chance to visit here in Portland uh, the idea with space is to have a bunch of different kinds of art, culture, and ideas happening in the same physical space. So we have visual art exhibitions, we have two rooms, and uh, within the context of those exhibitions we have live music, performance, artist talks, literary readings, film screenings, community events, etc., etc. Lots of things that you can't categorize. and the purpose of combining those things uh, is sometimes topical. We'll try to have a film that addresses a topic that might be brought up in the exhibition, for example. Um, but it's also a way of leading people towards something else that they weren't looking for. So, for example, a lot of our film goers come because they're interested in film but we've sort of tricked them into coming into a gallery setting and they have to look at the work that's on the walls while they're waiting for the film to start. And um, I think over the last 12 years, we've helped people feel more comfortable looking at something that they weren't looking for originally. I had the opportunity to um, watch Gibson Faye LeBlanc give a reading. He's a poet. He's mm -hmm. been on our show a couple of times. and. It was very interesting to be within that kind of social setting because there were all sorts of different people. It wasn't just poets or writers or artists or photographers. There was just a really broad range of individuals who were coming together to experience something that they may or may not have had a chance to experience otherwise. Yeah, it's true. We have a varied audience and um, it's, it's a good blend of kinds of people and ages, and um, I think the fact that the space is, is an intimate space, if we have a, a reading, for example, we've got the chairs out, and we've only got 130, 140 people in the room, and so you have close proximity to the person who's on stage and close proximity to the people sitting with you, and you never know if it's going to be a high school student or a retiree or someone in the middle. Uh, and um, we provide these shared experiences where people are laughing together or, you know, having a 
strong feeling about something the reader is talking about together and it really creates a pretty magical experience i can definitely relate to that i'm not sure what event it was but i believe it was um the either the principal or the superintendent um, in the Portland school system describing his own background as being basically a high school dropout and coming from um, from that place all the way over to his current position in education. And you could just feel the energy in the room and how it really opened up people's minds to the possibility that you know, life isn't necessarily a straight path. It's true. I remember that event, and it was... Uh that story had a lot of tension to it, um, but also some relief, I think, when he got to the end and talked about where he was. And um, everybody in the room was on the edge of their seat, listening intently to what he was saying, and uh, really like close with him, I think, through his, through his journey. It's, and it's a really great thing to be able to share that with somebody who's, who's opening themselves up. That does speak to something that I think many people don't always associate with art, and and that is discomfort. That sometimes we like to believe that um, art is always going to make us feel inspired or feel awe, or there's the beauty of a Monet or a Picasso in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. But sometimes it makes us feel strange or off. That's true, or it, it makes us confused even. and. Uh, I was talking with a friend last week um, uh, who doesn't know much about our work and um, asked me if if I considered us to be at space to be in the entertainment business. And I bristled at the word entertainment a little bit, and she was teasing me and asking me why. And and it's because I think, um, of course, we have lots of arts and culture that is entertaining. You know, you go to the movies, you want to be entertained. And we're looking for something that is sometimes entertaining, but sometimes challenging the ideas that we came in with, um, or making us uh, think a little bit differently about a social issue, uh, perhaps teaching us about something we didn't know much about. Um, And we really want the content of our programming to um, give the audience uh, their own experience without without us uh, framing things too much for people. You know, if somebody comes in and they see something in the gallery and they ask me, what is this or what am I supposed to be looking at? Uh, I always like to ask them to look at it first and then tell me what they think they're looking at before I'm trying to give them some secret answer, you know. And, and actually the secret is, I have my own experience, you have your own experience, and they're, but they're both valid. Is that something that is hard for people to understand? Um, I think about something like opera, which I don't know very much about, and there's a, there are all these layers of critique about opera, and there's all this knowledge about opera, or just really pick any um, artistic idea, that if you're somebody who's just to say you're a doctor who's never had a photography or an opera um, course, that it would be hard to go in and understand it because there's something magical or special about that that all the other opera and photography critics understand but you. Do you feel like that's something that happens? Yeah, I think we're, as a culture, we're oversensitive to our own understanding about things, and that gets in the way of our experience at times. And... I think we 
are capable of critical thinking and perception, and if we allow ourselves the time to look and to experience, then we can draw our own conclusions about what we're looking at or identify our own feelings about what we're looking at. And, and then our feelings are our own and they're valid. And I remember uh, we had uh, an exhibit at one point that had some sound art and uh, there was a video piece that had this kind of screechy sound component that we all uh, were a little bit annoyed by, especially working in the office and hearing it day after day after day, right? But none of us wanted to admit that it was slightly on the annoying end of the spectrum. And we had this class uh, from Southern Maine Community College come in. Uh, It was like an intro to visual arts class, and they came in to look at the show. And one of the students said, oh my God, that is terrible. That is so annoying. And I just really appreciated her naming what we all kind of felt, but didn't feel it like it was appropriate to say, you know? And of course, we want have people to have more positive experiences too. Um, but her her read on what that what was happening with that, there was more to it. But but her read was just as valid as someone who has a long history, uh, art history background, or who understands the context that that piece was made in, that kind of thing. Well, that I think you're right. I mean, I think that maybe there is something to the kind of different levels of understanding or different understanding things from different perspectives. It doesn't make the things any less valid if they're from one person's perspective versus another. It's just you just know things differently because of your own paradigm. Right. Right. And we we really try to um, create a variety of experiences and a variety of content that we're sharing with people at the gallery. And um, one thing people don't always understand about space is that everything's fairly uh, highly curated. Like we, we put a lot of thought into what we're presenting to people. We're not just sitting there in the office waiting for somebody to show up with their thing to share. Like we're, we're out in the world looking for what we think is, is good and what we think is worth um, putting time and energy towards. And um, so when, when people want to know what we're doing or what they might like, um, I always feel pretty confident handing someone a calendar of what's going on for the month, for example, and saying, I don't know what you're into or what your interests are, but I'm, but I'm fairly confident that of the 20 events we're doing this month, something here will interest you. You might not, you might not like it or it might not be your favorite thing in the world, but you won't leave regretting that you came. And if, if people give us a chance and, and get to know what we're trying to do in terms of the things that we're presenting, I think that's when they start to trust our judgment and uh, people have looked to us for what kind of films they should be watching, even if they're not coming to the gallery, if they're later, they're looking for something to watch on video, they'll look back at our, our schedule and see what did, what did space pick? Um, or, you know, if someone wants to go to the record store and buy a new record, you know, they'll, they'll look back at our calendar and say, well, who are the, who are the new bands that were playing at space in the last few months? And that's a level of curation that extends through and helps people, you know, figure out what they're, what they might like. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines 
carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. We've spent time on this show talking um, with the founders of the Camden International Film Festival mm-hmm. and, uh, and various other members of, I'll call it, that generation. But it's interesting to watch the the maturity that occurs over time when you actually are with a project that you feel really passionate about, um, but that needs to move and shift. Have you experienced that yourself over the 10 years you've worked For, there? Yeah, definitely. And um, when you're starting out, you have some clear visions in your mind about what you want it to be, but it's maybe hard to verbalize and you haven't seen it in, in action enough to be able to explain it to people and and you haven't done it enough for people to have confidence in you. And as you do more and you have more more things to point to, more people see the success and want to get involved and the more confidence you have doing your thing and the easier it is to ask people for help. So when we were when we were starting with space, I remember the first grants I was writing, uh, even to the Maine Arts Commission, uh, their grant form required that you check a box uh, naming one discipline that you worked in. You know, was it dance? Was it film? Was it theater? Was it music? Was it visual arts? And I would always write at the bottom of this list, I would draw a little box and I would write multidisciplinary and I would check the box and I would write a little note saying, you have to change your form because we're working in a different paradigm, you know, and eventually they recognized that that was a, that was a valid way of working. And, but it was hard in the beginning to explain what we're doing. And even today people come in and they say, I don't get it. Are you an art gallery or are you a film venue or are you a music venue? Because we're not used to that blend you know and if you experience that how that works together a few times it becomes obvious that it's that it's a workable system um so it took us a few years i think to try to get people to understand what we were doing and that took us took that that the effect of that was that people started validating our efforts by giving us good feedback and supporting us with donations and we started getting more grants and um, we've learned I think how to ask for the help that we need because we are a nonprofit we do require significant uh, sources of non-earned income you know grants and donations um, to be able to do what we're doing and 
it's it's never easy to ask for that help, but it becomes maybe less hard than it was back in the beginning. You've continued to expand the work that you're doing beyond the state of Maine. You've started um, now reaching out and working with individuals and groups across the country that are trying to do something similar to what you're doing. Yeah, we uh, were really lucky in uh, 2006 to be invited into a program run by the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, um, and they were giving grants uh, purely for capacity building for, for visual arts organizations, and capacity building meaning uh, support for infrastructure, for physical improvements, for technology, for consulting, not not program dollars, not staffing dollars. And um, we ended up getting about $150,000 from them um, over the course of a few years towards those things. And I always explained it as uh, money that if you were writing, running a business, you would have, you would have uh, found that money at the beginning before you opened your doors so that you could open the correct way. But we just opened without any resources and then eventually had to kind of catch up and as a as a member of this group in the initiative, uh, we made connections with our peer organizations all around the country, with um, art spaces in San Francisco, in New York, and Chicago, but also in York, Alabama, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you know places that you don't think of as art centers. And uh, through that, I've been able to develop a connect connection to my my peers who are running these spaces and we've decided we really need a more formal way of communicating with each other so we're trying to start a national network of um, artist-centered spaces and projects that is a real connection point we'll have some conferences um, different kinds of gatherings we'd like to work together to commission research about the the kind of work that we do and maybe put out some white papers that explain the value of the level of uh, arts engagement we're, we're working with. You know, Everyone understands why museums are important, but not everybody understands why the artist-centered alternative spaces are important. And we want to we band together maybe to talk about what we're doing and, and have uh, the, some of the larger national funders pay attention to what we're doing. And, We've actually already gotten some funding interest for it, even though we're just at the very beginning stages of what we're trying to do. But it's really been helpful for me to make these connections with these other people because there isn't another space quite like us in Maine. So it, it's been hard to have the right reference points along the way to know if we're doing things well. And and even even still within this national group, no one's no one's quite got the blend that we have. You know, no one else is doing 200 events a year and 20 exhibitions uh, with the size staff that we have or the size space that we have. Well, I've, I'm impressed with what you've managed to achieve, and I'm excited to see what um, Space Gallery is going to continue to achieve over time. Um, Nat, how do we find out about the Space Gallery for people who would like to learn more about donating money or watching a show or getting involved in some way? Sure. The easiest thing to do is to go to our website, which is space538.org. Um, and there you can uh, look at our calendar of events and see what our exhibitions are. You can 
make a donation online. You can sign up for our mailing list. You can learn about volunteering. Um, and uh, if you want to just pop by, we're at 538 Congress Street, right between uh, the main College of Art and Rennie's. And um, we love having people pop in and ask us what's going on. We've been speaking with Nat May, who is the executive director of the Space Gallery in Portland and also one of Maine Magazine's 50 people in the July issue. Thanks so much for the work that you've been doing and for bringing arts to this part of Maine and the world. Um, Keep up the good work. Thanks so much for having me. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 150, Good Works That Last. Our guests have included Deborah Walters, Jane Gallagher, and Nat May. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. Read about Nat May on the July Maine Magazine's 50 People list. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Get Twitter updates by following me as D-O-C-T-O-R-Lisa and see my daily running photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Good Works That Last show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our online producer is Kelly Clinton. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is available for download free on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Mm-hmm.